Good morning, good afternoon, que pasa, mi amigos, me llamo Wendell Wallace, standing amongst the tallest, here to talk about a podcast named Wendell's World in Sports, a show talking about what is happening on the basketball of courts, the football of fields, to reveal my thoughts and opinions and other worldly dimensions about what is happening in the everyday of college basketball, my Georgetown Hoyas, and the NBA, to talk about who's doing poorly, who's doing well in college football and the NFL for Monsieur's. And my Mademoiselles. Born and raised from the metropolitan area of Washington, D.C. and Montgomery County, M.D., this skillful sports talker MC will take you on a sports field expedition that will leave you with no other decision than to make listening to Wendell's World in Sports the Podcast your main mission. Treasure the pleasure together as I discuss the important sports topics that are a must and crush and destroy it like the New England Patriots or Pittsburgh Steelers pass rush. TJ, watch out for the next episode and make sure you download, subscribe with great pride so people will highly rate along with giving great reviews to create clues for people to follow so this podcast can remain the king like LeBron through yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Before I do, I want to give my special dedication. I want to give my thoughts and my prayers for those in Kentucky who are suffering through the devastation of those tornadoes. Again, my thoughts and my prayers are most definitely with you and hoping that you come out of this okay. So, you know, remember that life, real life, always moving forward, stopping for nobody. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So, what is happening? k Pos and me amigos, me llamo Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Good morning, good abend. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, wassalam alaikum, shalom, namaste, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Before I go ahead and start talking about the storyline from the NFL week of number 13, before I get into the Monday night football game between the Rams and Arizona Cardinals, before I get into the NFC and AFC standings currently, before I get into the COVID rampage, which is going through the NBA, before I get into the jubilation and joy of discussing my Georgetown Hoyas victory over the Syracuse Orangemen, before I talk about the nonsense of why in the hell does Urban Meyer still have a job with the Jacksonville Jaguars and why this was doomed to fail the minute that the uh, Jaguars said, you know what, Urban, it's a good idea if you could be our coach. Uh, before I get into all those things, I got to ask you, man, number one, how are you doing? What's happening? What's going on? You're doing everything that needs to be done to make sure that your neighborhood, your community, that your household, your place of employment, the way you hang out because of listening and learning, learning and listening, shutting up and listening and learning and giving respect for those of a different race, a different gender, 
a different political affiliation, a different God that they worship, if they worship a God at all, different financial background, different uh, place of the world? Are you giving those people who might be a little bit different from you, are you giving them their, their respect that they earn? So unfortunately for us, our world that we live in right now, for my generation, your generation, the generation before and after us, too selfish, too ignorant, too narrow-minded, too ingrained in the stupidity of uh, what we've been brought up to believe and think and those type of things. But for our children's sake, their children, their children, are you doing everything that you can to listen and learn and pass along the words of wisdom to shut up and listen to those so maybe they can live in a society that we would want to live in where everybody is judged based on the content of their character not by the color of their skin not by their gender not by how much money they have not how much that they're worth not by what part of the world that they're from not by who they love as a god not by who they love as a person are we trying to do everything in our small way big way huge way any way to do those things i hope that you are i'm trying to sometimes i fail sometimes i'm not living up to my own uh, expectations but uh it's a constant reminder that I need to do that. It's a constant reminder that I need to treat those who are different than I am the same respect as everyone else. Content of character, not anything else. Making this world move in a better position. So 20, 40, 60, 80 years from now, when the kids are in high school, middle school, elementary school, and they're going through their history books, they can take a look at this time and space in this country and this world and say, man, them folks were really that ignorant when it came to race, when it came to gender, when it came to religion. They were really that dumb. Yes, yes, we are were. That's what I'll be saying from heaven or hell or wherever. Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right, man, let's get into this, shall we? Let's shall. The week of the NFL, week 13, is now over. Some of the storylines, let's just take and talk about the game of the weekend. I guess you could say Monday night. It happened on Monday night. The LA Rams over the Arizona Cardinals 30-23 to for the Los Angeles Rams. I will say this. I don't know, man. You could maybe talk about, hey, that win against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers was a lot better or a lot more significant or what. I, I'm, I'm going no. I'm going no. That was in the week three. That was early on in the season. That was before the trades. That was before the acquisition. So, no, in a situation like this, especially after coming off some adversity with the Rams losing three of their last four games, this win on the road against a team like the Arizona Cardinals, who are le- leading the division, who at the time was the number one team in the NFC. I'm saying that this is the most significant victory for the Los Angeles Rams. In fact, it was only their second win. The Rams with their second win against a team with a winning record this season. They beat the Bucks, and then they uh, beat the Arizona Cardinals and against the other teams. And they're doing great, seven and one against teams who are terrible, seven and one against teams who are below or at five hundred. Fantastic! But what are you doing against the teams that are going to be in the playoffs? What are you doing against the teams as I mentioned before, with the roster that you have right now, and also the responsibilities that uh, the upper management less need made with the acquisition of Vaughn Miller made with the acquisition of Matthew Stafford made with the acquisition of Odell Beckham Jr. These moves weren't made so you could beat the Jacksonville Jaguars. These moves weren't made so you could be seven and one after 13 weeks against teams that are 500 or below. These moves were made so not you can just win your division. Not so you can just win your conference. Doggone it. These moves were made so you could just win the Super Bowl. Or I'm sorry, these moves were made so you could win Super Bowls. Not one Super Bowl, Super Bowls. I'm not going to go LeBron and go, not one, not two, not three, not four, but 
as I mentioned before in my other podcast, man, this run or this team that's set up by the uh, Los Angeles Rams organization, Vaughn Miller, Jalen Ramsey, Aaron Darnold, um, all these guys, these this move, these moves, this team, I believe has a three. Mm, are we going to say four? You think Matthew Stafford has four elite years in them? Do you think Matthew Stafford has four years of being a quarterback who can win a Super Bowl in them? I know Cooper Cup has it. What about Odell Beckham Jr. and his injuries? And look, I mean, we're only a devastating injury away from having all of this collapse. I'm speaking about how many Super Bowl the Los Angeles Rams are going to win. I'm speaking about in the year 2022, 23 and such. So before we start going ahead and talk about the Rams winning Super Bowls, there's a whole lot of things that need to be in play for them to win Super Bowls. When I'm speaking about them winning Super Bowls, plural, I'm speaking about that Aaron Donald is not going to get hurt. Dalen Ramsey is not going to get hurt. Matthew Stafford is going to stay stay at the same level that he is right now. That uh, Cooper Cup is still going to be at the same level. That Odell Beckham Jr. is not going to be uh, settled with injuries. And he's only going to get better once he fully grips the playbook by the Los Angeles Rams. All of these things that I'm thinking about when I say that the Los Angeles Rams are going to be winning Super Bowls. Or the Los Angeles Rams expectations should be to win Super Bowls. But yes, that should be... The goal, that should be the realistic expectation for the Los Angeles Rams. And this win over the Arizona Cardinals. Now, look, we can quibble and we can talk about, well, you know, how for real are the Arizona Cardinals, a team that really doesn't have a whole lot, if any, playoff success, really hasn't had any playoff experience whatsoever. And this is a regular season game. And we've seen time after time after time of really good games between two talented teams late in the season where neither of them, reach expectations, regardless of what their expectations are. So just because Arizona came into this game with a 10-2 and record doesn't mean beating them all of a sudden makes them, uh, makes the Los Angeles Rams a viable contender to be better currently than a team like the Green Bay Packers, a team like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who, if they're going to be going to the Super Bowl and all real no, you know, realistic expectations, those are the teams that they're going to have to be playing. So Again, just thinking about, you know, with this win by the Rams, you know, winning on the road and such, that, that, oh man, all of a sudden now the Rams have got it together. The Rams have finally done this and they've finally done that. And Matthew Stafford, after a couple of horrific starts that uh, he's come back and now he's the quarterback that we all thought he was after week three when he was really the first guy to emerge in the league as a potential MVP candidate after the game he had against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Again, that was game three, but um, yeah, still a situation where, man, you know, is Matthew Stafford going to be giving us that type of performances? Again, going into the game, one of the reasons why I say that this was a game where you could say the Los Angeles Rams, it was their best game of the season, considering the circumstances They had lost three of their last four games with the one victory coming at home against the Jacksonville Jaguars, a glorified homecoming game. So really can't take too much away from that. The Rams were missing five players after they tested positive for COVID, including Jalen Ramsey and Tyler Higbee, their their, uh, tight end and three other reserves. So it was Matthew Stafford stepping up, playing big-time football with the defense that was absolutely outstanding. And because of that, the Los Angeles Rams go on the road, hostile environment, Monday night football, and they get to win 30-23. to Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, Matthew Stafford, for the game. As I mentioned before, the star, give him the game ball along with Aaron Darnold and such, went 23 of 30. 
287 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. Cooper Cup caught 13 passes on 15 targets, 123 yards, and a touchdown. Touchdown. Odell Beckham Jr. caught his first caught the first touchdown of the game for the Rams. He had 70 at six catches for 77 yards on seven targets, and it was a game on offense where the Rams showed a whole lot of balance. The Rams showed that running game. Now they weren't. Derrick Henry out there. They weren't Jonathan Taylor out there. They weren't the uh, Baltimore Ravens at their peak running the football. But you know what? It was steady. It was consistent. It was moving the change. It wasn't putting them in uh, down the distance, long down the distance positions, especially in the fourth quarter when they needed to chew up some time. That Sony Michelle went ahead, got the job done, 20 carries, 79 yards. Yeah, no huge terms of, wow, unbelievable 50, 60-yard runs or something like that. He didn't run for 160. He didn't run for 200 yards or some nonsense like that. But his contribution to the win was very, very important because, once again, it was that steady, steady run game that the Arizona Cardinals had to respect. And when you respect that, then, again, it opened up the opportunities for Matthew Stafford to have the game that he had. So Sony Michelle, as I mentioned before, 79 yards, 20 carries, one point in the game, Los Angeles because of that balance, Los Angeles because of Matthew Stafford playing well, scored on four consecutive possessions to go down, to uh, go from being down 3 nothing after the Cardinals kicked the field goal on their opening possession of the game to then leading 27-13. The defense for Los Angeles, speaking about it here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with George Truly, Wendell Wallace, the defense was absolutely outstanding. Intercepted Kyler Murray two times, had two or three interceptions um, missed in terms of the chances that they had. Sacked them four times. Aaron Darnold had three sacks. Just reminded folks that he is the best defensive player in the game. You can speak about Michael Parsons, yes. You can speak about Garrett, uh, Miles Garrett, yes. But doggone it, Aaron Donald, don't forget me because my excellence has been consistent over the years that the bar that needs to be reached in terms of people going, wow, unbelievable, cool, awesome, this, that, and the other has been mitigated because of my greatness. So now you're taking a look at a Miles Garrett, you're taking a look at a TJ Watt, you're taking a look at a Michael Parsons shiny new toys and saying, hey, what? no, 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 don't forget Aaron Donald is still the King Biatches. Again, three sacks cost two holding penalties near the end of the game on the uh, guard. What was it, 64 and 65? Forgot their names. But when the Cardinals were trying to drive, especially after the onside kick, that the uh, holding penalty was caused, which uh, they basically killed those drives. The defense for L.A., DeAndre Hopkins, five catches for 54 yards, targeted by Kyler Murray 12 times. And Kyler Murray, you take a look at the stats, yeah, he was he was good. He wasn't terrible, but still, it was the um, it was a situation where he really didn't have the impact that he wanted to have. And then speaking again about the defense for Los Angeles, spoke about how they mitigated the impact of DeAndre Hopkins, how Aaron Darnold was a force as the Rams controlled not just the defensive line but also on the offensive end. They also controlled the offensive line. One of their weaknesses during this losing streak or at the time of losing streak when they had lost 
three out of four games. The fact that the Tennessee Titans beat them up pretty well. The fact that the San Francisco 49ers, a couple of Monday night footballs, football ago, beat them up pretty well along the offensive line, the defensive line. This was a very, very good effort by not only the offensive line, as mentioned before, the game that Matthew Stafford had, the amount of time that he had, the running lanes that he opened up for Sony Michelle, the time of possession and such, the ability to score on a consistent basis during the game to keep the Cardinals at bay once the offensive and defensive lines were uh, controlled by the Los Angeles Rams. Not only that, but, you know, it, it goes to show you, look, if you're going to be getting in the playoffs and you're going to be playing against Leonard Fournette and that strong offensive line from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and especially on defense, you see how strong that front four is when you're going to be going up against someone like the Green Bay Packers who have a good all-around running game and passing game with Aaron Rodgers and that running game as such when you're going to be speaking about the Dallas Cowboys getting to them a little bit later if they can ever turn around what's happening to them on the offensive side of the football you're going to be able you're going to need to be able if you're the Los Angeles Rams to be able to do some work along the offensive and defensive line and it was a good referendum on that on the defense to have the game that they had. Again, they didn't shut out the Cardinals. They didn't beat them up or or anything like that. But as far as the firepower and as well as the Cardinals played in that game, I thought the defense was quite commendable in having the cheers and having the glory and having the high five and having the acclaim that went to them during that game. So it was a situation where the offensive or the defensive line for the Rams was so dominant that Arizona just said, screw it, in terms of running the football for the most part in the second half. And you take away the 61 yards that Kyler Murray had on seven rushes, you're speaking about the main man running the football for Arizona, James Conner, 13 carries, 31 yards. That's defense, Holmes. That's defense, man. That's what I'm talking about if you're a... Los Angeles Ram fan. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So again, speaking about the Los Angeles Rams, speaking about their victory moving forward now. So because again, this is all fan and dandy. This is all great. But remember, big picture, this is only their second win against a team that's not below 500 or at 500. So what does this mean moving forward? What does this mean? What's going to be the key takeaway from this game? The key takeaway for me is that if the Rams want to reach the ultimate success that they put in front of themselves in terms of goals and aspirations to win championships, or at least this season to win a championship, it's going to come down to Matthew Stafford. It's not going to come down to Jalen Ramsey. not going to come down to Aaron Darnold. They'll play a role in it without question. But in the feature movie, Los Angeles Rams winning a Super Bowl and championship, the star of the show has to be, the leading man has to be Matthew Stafford. And during a stretch, during three games in the losing streak, when you speak about Tennessee, that game on Sunday Night Football where it was amazing. Everybody was high and giddy and, you know, feeling good because they had just acquired Vaughn Miller. And then after that, the acquisition of Odell Beckham Jr. And they go on the road and play San Francisco. And then they come back and try to get on the good foot with a, game against the uh, Green Bay Packers at Lambeau and all three of those games they lost. Um, Matthew Stafford wasn't any good. In fact, he threw three, he threw a pick six on three of those, and, you know, in three straight games. 
completing 61% of his passes, or one of his, uh, 61 of his 121 pass attempts. But okay, but he had five touchdowns and five interceptions. That type of game, and there were questions about, well, you know, how healthy was this guy? How healthy was his back? And other injuries that he was nursing, and one of the reasons why he wasn't playing well or playing up to the uh, level that he had earlier in the season was because of injuries, and he wasn't letting anybody on, and maybe that was the reason why. So we had that narrative to discuss. It doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter. Just because the quarterback is injured, your most important player on offense, doesn't mean that they're going to uh, give you three points. It doesn't mean that they're going to give you seven points when you get to the playoffs. You're suffering. You're injured. Deal with it. And Matthew Stafford, again, one game. Again, not counting the game against Jacksonville because it's Jacksonville. But in games that matter, in games that count, in games in which you're going to be playing a team on the level of you and on the level of being able to win a championship, being able to win the conference and Super Bowl championships. How is Matthew Stafford going to play for one game? For one game, he played very, very well. How does he play moving forward? When you speak at the Rams remaining schedule against Seattle, at Minnesota, at Baltimore, at uh, and now on the road, excuse me, then to um, end the season at San Francisco, we will find out. We will definitely find out. But again, some of the games, as I take a look at that schedule, I take a look at that game at Baltimore, who's fading? But I'm guessing I'm not a doctor. I wasn't there for the MRI or anything else. So I don't know by that time what Lamar Jackson's status is going to be, even if he is playing, how close to 100% is he going to be? But I take a look at the games against Baltimore on the road and then the season finale against San Francisco, where you're going to have two teams that should be playing for something because this is going to be a situation where they're not going to be resting their starters or because of their position in the playoffs, they're not going to be playing their starters one quarter or two quarters and such, that this is going to be another test for some of the weaknesses of the Rams' offensive, defensive line, physicality that will be a good gauge as they move into the playoffs. The Rams, again, Seattle is not a bad uh, test either. Let's see how they're going to play as they play them next Sunday. So it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see the Rams moving forward in this situation. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with, with us speaking about the game, the Los Angeles Rams and the Arizona Cardinals from Monday night, recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. So we're speaking about yesterday as I was watching that up in the motel room, hotel room, holiday in at uh, Mesquite, Nevada. One thing. If you're a Los Angeles Rams fan, is hey, you know what? Odell Beckham Jr. Mm-hmm. 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 It's getting better every game. As he gets more comfortable with this role in the offense. He caught fifteen so far with the Rams. He's caught fifteen passes for two hundred and four yards, three touchdowns, but he was solid against the Cardinals last uh, last night. He's gonna have more responsibility responsibility now with Robert Woods lost for the year because of an ACL tear. So, hey, you know what? Questions for L.A. moving forward. How is Odell Beckham going to, you know, mix into the whole offense with the L.A. Rams? How long is he going to be able to uh, do that? So far, so good. Started off a little bit shaky, but the more responsibility that you can give Odell Beckham, a guy who uh, one of the more dynamic receivers in the NFL to go along with Cooper Cup and when you get Higby back at the tight end position 
the loss of Woods is devastating without question, but it's mitigated just a little bit because of Odell Beckham Jr. And again, his ability to get better and better and more comfortable with the offense each game that the Rams play. And they're going to be needing them because you can't put two guys on Cooper Cup the entire game. You're going to have to go ahead or you're not going to be able to have a good strategy in terms of putting a double team, moving the safety over to a Cooper Cup side if Odell Beckham Jr. is going to be doing a thing. So for the Rams, Odell Beckham Jr. needs to be doing his thing. Some of the questions for the Rams moving forward, I heard this after the game where they're speaking about, you know, the chances that the Rams are winning, doing something. Once the playoffs start, it's because, well, they say, well, we have to uh, take into account that the quarterback, that Matthew Stafford, because he played with Detroit, really had very little playoff experience and, and what will that mean in the playoffs when he goes against seven-time Super Bowl winner Tom Brady what will that mean when he goes up against playoff veteran Aaron Rodgers what's that going to mean well if Aaron Rodgers was actually going up against Matthew Stafford I would have some worries if Tom Brady was actually going up against Matt against uh, Matthew Stafford I would have some worries but it's not going to be Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers going up against the offense for the LA Rams. It's going to be how are they going to navigate the Rams defense? So how much of a force is Aaron Darnold going to be? How much is a force is Jalen Ramsey going to be? How much will Vaughn Miller, how much will his impact impact make if he's going to make any type of impact? Hey man, if you can play, you can play. You know what I'm saying? For the Rams moving forward and Matthew Stafford, how are they going to do against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in terms of if Tampa Bay cannot get their secondary situation situated because of injuries. I don't worry about Tom Brady in that essence when you're speaking about Rams, Buccaneers, playoff game. If the Buccaneers don't have their full complement of secondary men, then Matthew Stafford's going to have the time of his life, even on the road, if they play on the road in a playoff game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Then moving to Green Bay, it's all about the weather. It's all about the defense. What about Jair Alexander? What about some of the injuries that the Packers have had in their secondary, bringing them back, getting them ready to go? That's more of the focus if you're a Los Angeles Ram fan in terms of how are they going to be doing in the and the um, veteran experience, playoff experience of Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. That's for... Right, that's for Raheem Morris to uh, worry about. That's for Raheem Morris is the uh, Raheem Morris is the coordinator for the is he he's the coordinator for the Rams or is he the coordinator? I think he's the coordinator for the Rams. Vance Joseph is the defensive coordinator for the Arizona Cardinals. Whatever the defensive coordinator for the Los Angeles Rams, that's going to be their worry. Aaron Donald, that's going to be their worry. Jalen Ramsey, that's going to be their worry in terms of finding out what to do to slow down and try to put the reps with such quarterbacks as Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. So this question about the playoff experience of Matt Stafford, again, if the man can play, the man can play. And you also have to think about, well, how much confidence do the Rams have from actually beating the Buccaneers this season, 34 to 24 at home in week three. Now you can sit there and talk about, well, big fucking deal, Wendell. It was week three. I mean, give me a break. A lot of things have happened. A lot of things have changed since week three. Understood. But hey, man, if you're trying to get to that mental, if you're just trying to just do something in terms of saying, hey, fellas, it's the playoff. But guess what? 
in the playoffs, yeah, the game changes, but the rules stay the same in terms of you have to score, you have to put the ball in the end zone, that's six points, and you have to kick the extra point, that's one point. And if you don't put the ball in the end zone, but if you're from a certain yardage uh, vantage point, you can actually kick a field goal that's worth three points. The name of the game is tackling, the name of the game is throwing and catching, the name of the game is running. Those things don't change. So we have shown that we can beat the Buccaneers. Yeah, it was week three. Yeah, it was a regular season game, but we're still good enough. The, the evidence is there. The precedent has been set that we can beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yeah, we might be doing it on the road. Yeah, we might be doing it in the playoffs, but we can do it. We have done it. So if we can do it then, why can't we do it now? That mentality, I'm not, I'm not Sean McVay. I don't know what his motivational tactics are to get those guys ready to play, but it's been done. So why should all of a sudden, once they get into the playoffs, everything just flip the script 180? Again, understood that the playoffs are a whole different animal. Understood that we're speaking about week three a long time ago, almost a half a lifetime ago, when you're speaking about the 2021 NFL season. Got it. But man, you want to get an edge with the mental. If you want to go ahead and just put some positivity in the minds, hey man, let's see what we can do by um, throwing that out there. Let's throw up that narrative Throw that up against the wall and see if it sticks with the players. They're going to be the ones out there playing. Any any type of motivational juice you can drink to get yourself ready, as long as you don't get drunk with it, hey, man, go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Now, we spoke about the Los Angeles Rams, right? What about your Arizona Cardinals? Lost a very winnable game. You down? You're questioning? Are they frauds? Are they regular season heroes? What's up, man? What's the narrative now when it comes to your thoughts and feelings about the Arizona Cardinals? Mistakes and missed opportunities cost them the game. First quarter, first possession of the game from uh, in the game, third and 10 from the LA 35-yard line. Murray missed a wide-open A.J. Green. He went left in terms of his eyes, went left, the ball sailed right. He was wide open, would have scored a touchdown, and said they had to settle for a 53-yard field goal. So instead of being up 7 nothing, the crowd's going wild. Everything is going great. The Rams are like, oh, shit, we're not playing Jacksonville, are we? They settled for a 53-yard field goal. Second possession, after the Rams went three and out, right? The Cardinals get the ball. They go 64 yards to the Rams' four-yard line. Second and goal, Murray goes back for the throw, a pass, and he's intercepted. Return to the Rams 32. And after that interception, guess what happened? Momentum swung 180 to the Rams. They won 68 yards for the OBJ short TD pass to make the score 7-3 in favor, of, in favor of the Rams. Matthew Stafford going 7-7 seven for seven on that drive. So it was like, oh, okay. All right, very early. We see that Matthew Stafford's going to be having one of those games tonight. So at that point in the game, you're thinking, damn, man, at the very least, at the very worst, you're thinking missed opportunities, terrible, horrible. You're thinking the worst of the worst being 6 nothing. You had to kick two doggone field goals. We needed to put the ball in the hoop. I mean, we needed to put the uh, ball in the end zone, blah, blah, blah. I'm watching the uh, Warriors and the Knicks play. That's why I said put the ball in the hoop. My bad. Speaking of Stephen Curry. But it was like, man, you know, we kicked two field goals. We should be up by more. But, you know, doggone it. That's the, that's the worst of the worst, right? If you're the Arizona Cardinal fan before that interception happened. At the very best, it should have been 14 to nothing Cardinals. And, you know, right in the middle, it should have been 10 nothing Cardinals. And what would have happened? What would have been the psyche 
what would have been the game plan? What would have been the thought process early in the game? Of course, we're not speaking about third or fourth quarter, but just think about the momentum. Just think about the attitude. Just think about the positivity. Just think about that crowd going nuts. Just think about, you know, how much confidence the Arizona Cardinals would have. They're in rhythm. They're doing their thing. Their mentals, because they scored two touchdowns, up 14 nothing. They're feeling good. They're playing free, this, that, and the other. The Rams. All of a sudden now, again, it's like, damn, we're not playing Jacksonville. Damn, are we go again? You know, we're, I'm quite sure they're cognizant of the fact that they haven't done well against teams with winning records. I'm quite sure they remember the beatdown at home that the Arizona Cardinals gave them. If the Cardinals go up 14 to nothing after scoring two touchdowns to open the game, what's going to be the psyche? What's going to be the confidence level? What's going to be the level of concern, desperation, panic? Oh shit, here we go again. Oh no, not again. What's going to be that level for the Los Angeles Rams? And what's going to be the attitude for the Arizona Cardinals being up 14 to nothing, two possessions, two touchdowns to start the game with the second possession after the Rams go out 3-0 and or after the Rams go out in three plays? What's going to be the deal? What's going to be the dealio? What's going to be the thought process of the Arizona Cardinals? Fuck yeah, we got our mojo back. Hell yeah. Kyler's got his groove back. Oh, yeah, DeAndre is rolling. All of those things are going to be playing. And again, that doesn't mean that Arizona was going to win the game. The game just started. You can't, even being up 14-0, you can't equate that to the Cardinals were going to win the game. But, man, that momentum swing, you don't know what it did. I mean, it was just like, damn, man, damn, damn, damn. So you don't think that the Cardinals were sitting up there at the end of the first quarter, even midway through the second quarter after that interception, the Rams go down, score a touchdown, they're up 7-3. to three. You don't think that's playing in the mind of Kyler Murray, Cliff Kingsbury, how he's calling the game, how they're looking at the game? A lot different. Murray battled, made plays, but his mistakes were costly. 32-49. 383, no touchdowns, and two interceptions. He also ran for seven, uh, 61 yards on seven carries. So the Rams allowed the Cardinals to have 486 yards, right? Murray accounted for 444 of them. That's 91% of the offense. That's Lamar Jackson, Monday Night Football, Baltimore against the uh, Indianapolis Colts type of stuff. So you, you can't sit there and you can't sit there and curse out and yell and scream and shake your head and put your hands in your put your head in your hands and that type of thing and despair over the performance that Kyler Murray had. Guy was outstanding, but his mistakes were costly. Two interceptions that he threw accounted for 14 Rams points. They lose the game by seven. The second interception by Murray crushing, crushing the fact that, okay, First one intercepted, brought back to the Rams 32-yard line. Cardinals, let's see if you can show some resilience. Okay, we stopped them on three plays to uh, begin the game with the Rams. Let's go ahead and do it again, get the ball back. And next time, Kyler Murray will not be stopped. He will not make that interception. He will not make that throw. He will not make that mistake. We get into the end zone. We go up 14 to nothing, and we're right back to feeling good about ourselves. That's what the defense, that's the mentality of the defense should have been. But no. No, after that interception, the Rams marched down the field, score a touchdown, 7-3, goddammit. But, second interception by Kyler Murray. That happened deep in Cardinals territory. From their own 25, first possession of the second half. After 
The Rams had gone down and scored a touchdown to break a 13-13 tie in the first half to lead 2013. Momentum before that interception, clearly with the Rams. Okay, let's go ahead and get that momentum back. Damn, we threw an interception. Leonard Floyd intercepted that pass, brought it back to the 19. Stafford threw his third TD pass of the game to Cooper Cup to make it 27-13. Now all of a sudden things are jumbled. Now all of a sudden, you know, things are um, totally totally different now all of a sudden the stadium is silent and all of a sudden there's despair in the air all of a sudden now it's a realization floating throughout that stadium like damn man are we gonna do this again are we gonna lose at home again are we gonna lose to another team where we're gonna have to be facing them in the playoffs how good are we how much respect should we get now? The fact that, damn, man, this is the second time we're losing 27-13 to 13 against the uh, Rams. A game at home. We put a lot of emphasis on yeah, 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 and all this kind of nonsense. Now look what we're doing, all damn shit. That type of stuff permeates the air. That type of stuff is part of the narrative within the crowd at the stadium. All of a sudden now, the tenor of that game for the Arizona Cardinals changes. All of a sudden now, we got to abandon the run. And again, they weren't running great to begin with, but just the threat at least takes some of the pressure off Kyler Murray. All of a sudden now, you're going to tell the best defensive lineman and one of the best, if not the best, defensive player in the game, Aaron Aaron Darnold, that you're going to be doing nothing but passing? Woo! Man, a chill, a fear must have gone through the offensive line for the Arizona Cardinals. So all of those things come into play when you're speaking about the type of game that Kyler Murray had on Monday Night Football. I'm not going to throw in the narrative. I'm not going to talk about the narrative. It's Kyler Murray, a big-time football guy, and can you trust Kyler Murray in the playoffs? And he's never been in the playoffs, and he's a young quarterback and all this kind of nonsense. Not not, not, not going there. Not throwing that out there. Not going to be talking about it. Still think Kyler Murray is an elite quarterback, an elite quarterback who's only going to get better. Unfortunately, he's not going to reach the levels of excellence that Many Arizona Cardinal fans will want to see him get to this year that he'll get to in the next couple of years, but no, no. Um, Kyler Murray is still your guy, and there's no law, there's no rule written that you have to be, you have to be you know, winning Super Bowls over Super Bowls to actually have a chance to um, win a Super Bowl. Go ask Nick Foles and the Philadelphia Eagles if you have to be uh, a guy, if, if, you're, if you have to be a Super Bowl-winning all-time great quarterback to win a Super Bowl. Would it be nice? Hell yeah, it would be nice. But whatever team is the healthiest, whatever whatever team is having the momentum, and whatever team is playing the best, that's the team that wins the Super Bowl, not the one who has the best quarterback. Jeff Hostetler won a, won a quarterback. He won a quarterback. He won a Super Bowl. Um, Brad Johnson won a Super Bowl. Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl. Jimmy Garoppolo took the San Francisco 49ers to a Super Bowl and became one pass incompletion short of beating Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City football team of winning a Super Bowl. Uh, you don't have to be an all-time great to get to a Super Bowl and even win a Super Bowl. Kyler Murray, as of right now, as we stand, can be that guy to get the Cardinals to a Super Bowl. Now, it's a little bit dicey when you watch him play because it's like when the the, the Cardinals, I don't think, really have a go-to, a plan B. It's almost like, here's the ball. It's almost like what the Baltimore Ravens do with Lamar Jackson. And for a while, what the Seattle Seahawks did with Russell Wilson on offense. It's, okay, here's the ball. 
there, fellas. Make something happen. And there's so much responsibility that Kyler Murray has to that team that they don't have a plan B. They don't have someone that they can hand the ball off to 25, 30 times and get the job done. You know, the defense, while good, but they missed J.J. Watt. So they're not going to win too many football games where it's going to be 17 to 14, where it's going to be 21 to 17. You know, this is a situation where as Kyler Murray goes, the Arizona Cardinals go, not A.J. Green, not DeAndre Hopkins, not James Conner, not Buda Baker, not Chandler Jones. It's all about what Kyler Murray can do. And you take a look at some of the inexperienced moves from yesterday's game that Cliff Kingsbury made, trying to go forward on fourth and one with about 5-16 left to go in the game, whether you were down by 10 instead of kicking the field goal. Brian Greasy was going on and on and on and on and on and on and on about that. The haphazardness of the final play of the game. Now, did those situations cost Arizona the win? No, no, no. But you want to talk about Matthew Stafford not having any playoff experience. You want to talk about the possibility of Kyler Murray going up against Tom Brady or an Aaron Rodgers and that playoff, that lack of playoff experience. What about the head coach? What about Cliff Kingsbury? I'm quite sure that his coach, the acumen against Super Bowl winning coaches like Bruce Arians and, um, and um, well, you know, the uh, Green Bay coach had to win the Super Bowl, but you know we're, we're speaking about what's going to be the stature going up against those those players against against those coaches, Matt Lafleur and Bruce Arians. So those are just some of the things. Can you trust the Arizona Cardinals? Are the Arizona Cardinals legit? Yeah, I think they're legit. Against the Green Bay Packers, against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, against the Los Angeles Rams, against the San Francisco 49ers, against the Dallas Cowboys. Notice that I mentioned. Notice I'm mentioning these teams. They're third in the division. They're still tied in the NFC for the best record in the league. In fact, they're still tied in the NFL for the best record in the league. But when you're speaking about a team that could be vulnerable the most, because look, man, Arizona, Dallas, the Rams, the 49ers, they could beat the uh, Green Bay Packers in the playoffs. They can beat the Tampa Town Buccaneers in the playoffs. The chances are slim, but it's happened before. That's why it's called upsets. But um, if an upset's going to happen between one of the division leaders, let's just say the Packers go ahead and they win the NFC North. The Buccaneers, four-game lead in the NFC South, they're going to win that division. Arizona holds off the Rams, so they win the NFC West. And the Dallas Cowboys, now at 9-4, they win the NFC Least East. Which one of those teams, the Packers, the Buccaneers, the Cardinals, or the Cowboys, which one is the most susceptible to being upset? Well, you're probably going to pick the Arizona Cardinals. Why? Because of the offense they run, because of their head coach, because of maybe their quarterback, because of their inexperience, all of those things. So if a wildcard team is going to pull off an upset against one of the division leaders, you're probably going to say it's going to be the Arizona Cardinals. Not going to argue that point, not going to disagree with that point, but what I'm saying is that let's not sleep on the Arizona Cardinals and go on the assumption just because they lost to the Rams at home last uh, night or Monday night that something like that is in the Arizona Cardinals. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Doggone glad that you could be with us. Taking a look at some of the NFC 
Standings, as I mentioned before, the division leaders, the Green Bay Packers, number one seed, 10 and three, the number two seed, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 10 and three, the Arizona Cardinals falling from the top seed to the number three seed, they're 10 and three, the number four seed are them Dallas Cowboys, the nine and four Dallas Cowboys. How about them Cowboys? Wild card, the number five seed, Los Angeles Rams, nine and four, one game behind the Cardinals in the NFC West. The San Francisco 49ers also in the NFC West. They're at seven and six after a good win that they had against the Cincinnati Bengals, the number seven seed final team in the playoffs if the season ended today. The six and seven Washington Snyder Skins after that disappointing loss loss against the Dallas Cowboys. Then on the outside looking in at the number eight seed, the Philadelphia Eagles, six and seven. Number nine, Minnesota Vikings, six and seven. Number ten, Atlanta Falcons, six and seven. And then New Orleans, six and seven. I just mainly gave courtesy in terms of outside looking into Atlanta and New Orleans. Atlanta's their defense is too sorry, especially in the secondary, for them to be real true playoff contenders. And with New Orleans with that situation at quarterback, not even Sean Payton can save them. So I just gave those a courtesy outside looking in at the number 10 and 11 slot for those squads. In the bottom of the conference in the NFC, number 12, the Carolina Panthers. How's Cam Newton back? How, how, how's I'm back Cam Newton doing? I'm back. I'm back. Oh, you're back on the bench. Oh, okay. Nice outfit at the post game too after explaining how you threw that horrendous pass. The number 12 seeded Carolina Panthers are 5-8. and eight. I'm back. Well, put your helmet back on and sit on the bench. The number 13 seed, the Seattle Seahawks, 5-8. and eight. 14 at 4-8, and eight, the Chicago Bears. Number 15 is the New York Giants in the conference at 4-9. and nine. And then coming in, number 16 and last, yes, your Dan Campbell's Detroit Lions, 1-11. And one. So Green Bay, again, now the number one seed in the NFC, have won 10 of their last 11 games in which Aaron Rodgers have played in the game. They beat Chicago in the I Still Own You Bowl on Sunday night. They outscored Chicago 24-3 to in the second half to win 45-30. to Outside of, uh, I guess you could say, what, what word could we use? Disastrous, horrible, terrible, concerning special teams play? Green Bay looks solid as a football team. Everybody's talking about the Arizona Cardinals. Um, yeah, uh, the way the Green Bay Packers are playing on special teams, yeah, that could cost them a victory in the playoffs if they don't get those things straightened out. But Aaron Rodgers was, I own you great against the Bears on Sunday night, 29 to 37. 341 yards, four touchdowns. Hello, the Packers offense against the Bears, still humming. Like Sam and Dave, you got me humming. 439 total yards of offense on 11 drives, averaging 7 yards per play. Went 3 of 4 in the red zone, averaged 5 yards per carry on 24 rushing attempts. So the balance was there for the Packers. And basically, they're going to clinch their division, the NFC North, with a win against the Baltimore Ravens and the Vikings losing against Minnesota. Wow. The Vikings losing against Chicago. The Vikings... When you lose to the Lions, don't put anything past the Mike Zimmer-led Minnesota Vikings in terms of being disappointing, being disappointments. So you take a look at the remainder of Green Bay's schedule after the Ravens game. They 
play at home against the Cleveland Browns. Nice victory they had against the Pittsburgh Steelers. They play Minnesota, and they're at Detroit. So this could be a situation where against Detroit, those guys could be resting some starters because I don't see any type of roadblocks. I don't see any type of hiccups looking at their schedule here for the Packers moving forward. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. The number two seed Tampa Bay Buccaneers won their fourth game in a row, opened up a four-game lead in the NFC South Division. They beat Buffalo in overtime. Buffalo, what is happening, man? Josh Allen walking out of there in a walking boot. Uh-oh. You guys need to... Uh, guys might need to try running the football every once in a while. Might, uh, might do you some good. But then again, I don't know, man. You know what? I'll get to the AFC in just a second, but I was like... Am I being too? Am I looking for something? Am I looking just for something to talk about and discuss and all those type of things? When Buffalo came down and on fourth down, I don't know if it was fourth and two or whatever, but they were down by three. They went ahead and kicked the field goal to uh, take it into overtime. Was I was like, should I even mention? Should I even think about? Am I just just bullshitting here and just looking for something to think about, talk about, discuss, give out my opinions when? They should have maybe just gone for it on fourth down and tried to win the game in regulation. I, I, don't, I don't know, man. Sean McDermott, really good coach, knows a lot more about the game. He was there. He knows his team. He knows what was happening. So he felt it was better for them to kick the field goal. But, man, you know what? You get the ball back to Tom Brady with a, in a tie game. Mm, I know the second half they slowed down a little bit, and, and the uh, Buccaneers gave up that lead when they were rolling. But, I don't know, man. I was like, I wonder if I'm just thinking about this just because I need something to talk about. Either way, you know, I'm not going to be sitting there talking about, there's Sean McDermott. What the fuck? How did he lose the game by not going for it on fourth down? You're playing Tom Brady. You don't let him go in overtime with the ball, blah, blah. Nah, I don't do that shit. I don't do that shit. It was a move that um, McDermott had to make. And as I mentioned before, he knows his team and he knows the situation a lot more and a lot better than I do. So who am I to tell the guy who actually has, I don't know, personal relationships with some of these teammates and when has, I don't know, decades of experience coaching um, NFL football? Who am I to sit there and say, no, you're wrong. Let me tell you how I do this. So, you know, whatever. So again, Tampa Bay won their fourth game in a row, beat Buffalo in overtime 33-27. Bashar Perryman's 58-yard run and catch with 531 left to go in overtime gave the Bucks, the win. Tom Brady, solid as usual, 31-46 for 363. Two touchdowns. Leonard Fournette becoming quite a impact player for the Bucks on the offensive end. 113-yard rushing, 47-yard touchdown run on 19 carries. Second uh, time in three games that uh, Leonard Fournette had run for 100 yards in the game. Good golly, Miss Molly. If they can keep that up, makes it even more potent. Talent-wise, on the offensive end, remember there was a time, and I'm not speaking about the song by James Brown, remember the time, but remember the time this season where the Cowboys were considered to have the most talent at the offensive skill position when Zeke and Tony Pollard and yeah, Dak at quarterback, and at the time he was considered the front runner for the MVP, and you had Amari Cooper, and you had C.D. Lamb, and oh my goodness gracious, and this and the other, and Man, how did we forget about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? I mean, goodness gracious, man. How in the world did we kind of forget about Gronk and Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and Tom Brady at quarterback and Leonard Fernand? I mean, Ronald Jones is a damn, I think, 
is a pretty doggone good running back. He can't see the field right now because of how well Leonard Fournette is, <clears throat> Leonard Fournette is playing, finally living up to the hype, being the number four pick out of LSU and coming in and doing some things when he was with Jacksonville and now what he's doing with the uh, Bucks, Man, that, that is a talented, 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 talented offense with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And we speak about Kellen Moore, Kellen Moore, Kellen Moore. Don't give me any more about Kellen Moore becoming a head coach when you're not also putting in the same sentence, Byron Lefwich. Also, the job that he's done. Yes, I know that knuckleheads out there are going to sit there and talk about, well, fuck it, you got Tom Brady. I mean, you know, really? I mean, he's running the show, right? Remember when Peyton Manning was uh, doing a thing in Indianapolis and Tom Moore, the offensive coordinator, was just a guy in passing in terms of, oh, yeah, you know what? He, uh, he, he is very important to the offense in Peyton Manning. I mean, every Tuesday for the meetings, he's bringing in the best donuts to the meetings. He's absolutely fantastic when Peyton is bitching and moaning about what he should do. He doesn't have an ego. He just says, yes, sir, and goes ahead and let Peyton run the thing. That's what the novice, that's what the ignorant, that's what those really, that's what people thought about that shit. No, Tom Moore was pretty doggone important to what happened on the greatness of Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning had a lot to do with it, of course. But shit, Tom Moore also had to do a lot with that also. Same thing with uh, Tampa Tom. Oh yeah, Tom Brady, Tom Brady, greatest quarterback of all time. This, that, and the other, blah, 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 blah. Hey, let's remember Tom Brady at 43, 44 years old doing what he's doing. Uh, that should be a high mark on the coaching acumen and the offensive coordinating skills of Byron Leftwich. Enough to where it's like, maybe he should be in serious consideration. We're just going to be falling over Kellen Moore and what he's done with the uh, Dallas Cowboys offense with the weapons they have. Remember at one time considered one of the best in the, in the NFL. Well, then maybe we should go ahead and apply also the fact that Byron Leftwich, a Super Bowl winning offensive coordinating Byron Leftwich, might I add you, should be in serious consideration for some of these jobs. <clears throat> Jacksonville should be considered, um, you know, a guy who could really straighten up a team that has a promising young quarterback with a lot of potential, <clears throat> Chicago. So maybe that should be a situation where Byron Leftwich, not given the job, but given a true, sincere opportunity to impress so he can get those jobs. I'm quite sure that Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields would say, Mr. Leftwich, come on down and share some of that DC magic that you have, that you gave to Tampa Tom to um, apply it to me also. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, but Tampa Bay is rolling. The Dallas Cowboys, speaking about teams that are trying to roll, rock and roll over the Washington Snyder skins, my Washington football skins, my Washington hometown skins, my Washington, what the hell kind of response was that in the crowd when I was watching that game on Sunday skins? I'm sorry, I thought uh, I came from the days where, you know, RFK was rocking and rolling and shaking and you had the hogs and all that type of stuff. Now, I'm watching this game here from my town home in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I'm watching this game, and I'm hearing when Dallas makes a great play, or when Dallas makes a play, or when Dallas makes a stop, or when Dallas does something uh, of their advantage. I'm hearing a crowd in Prince George's County, Maryland, cheering for the other team. Cheering for the other team. We're letting the Dallas Cowboy fans infiltrate our stadium, plant their flag in the stands, and let their voices be heard. 50-50 as far as crowd reaction is concerned. 
I blame Dan Snyder. I blame Dan Snyder. Blame Dan Snyder. Blame Dan Snyder. Can we please do something to get that clown off of being the owner of our team? Can we set him up the way we set up Marion Barry? Can we set him up the way that Donald Sterling, can we somehow somewhere get a Vistiviano to call up Daniel Snyder and have him say something terrible, even though in the NFL, it really doesn't matter with being the owners. We kind of we kind of found that out with uh, with multiple <clears throat> examples. But damn, man, damn, damn, damn! It was like really, really. This is what the Washington football scene is now like. We let the Dallas Cowboys come into our stadium and let their voices be heard, aloud and proud, without being scurred. Oh well, Daniel Snyder, Daniel Snyder, Daniel Snyder. Like I mentioned before, man. As long as Daniel Snyder is the owner, the fact that I'll never be able to taste the opportunity to drink from the Super Bowl, the, the, the cup of Super Bowl, I'll never have that drink Super Bowl champion again as long as Daniel Snyder is my owner. Life without parole, I guess you can say, as far as being mediocre with the Washington football team. It's a shame. I'm depressed. I'm sad. But now I'm back. Speaking about Dallas over Washington. For Dallas, led 24-0, 27-8 midway through the fourth quarter before things got a little bit interesting. Defense for Dallas looked good. They looked like they're ready to make an impact in the playoffs. The offense, eh, not so much. Still uneven, still inconsistent. Against Washington, Micah Parsons, the rookie, had a defensive MVP type of statement game. Sack Tyler Henneke, not once but twice, and forced a fumble. Tyler Henneke. Dallas defense against Washington held them to 224 total yards on 62 plays, 14 total drives. Washington completed three yards per pass play on 34 attempts, had a completion ratio completion uh, ratio less than uh, he completed less than 50 percent. I'm sorry, I'm getting depressed just thinking about this. Completed less than 50 percent of their passes. Hey, but we won the NFC East last year. We won the NFC East with a 7-9 record. Who needs Justin Fields? Who needs Mac Jones? We won the NFC East with a 7-9 record. Thank you, Alex Smith. We had Dwayne Haskins in our midst ready for us to go 1-15 and would have given us a strong position to draft a generational great quarterback like Trevor Lawrence and at the very, very, very least had the opportunity to draft Justin Fields. But no, 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 no. Alex Smith came in, saved the day. Dwayne Haskins being the complete fuck-up that he is. Ruined their chances of getting a high draft pick because they actually got a quarterback in there who was a professional and actually knew how to do some things at a professional NFL level. So because of that, the defense picked up and we started winning football games and my dreams of getting Trevor Lawrence went out the drain, went out the door, went out the window, went out the garage, went down the street, made a left, hit the... uh, not going here Avenue and was never seen again. So Trevor Lawrence wasn't coming down that boulevard. Justin Fields wasn't coming up that road over to save us from mediocrityville where the Washington football team resides. Nope, nope. But we made the playoffs. We can hang a banner saying NFC champions with a 7-9 flipping record. Now we have to live with Taylor Heineke as our quarterback after Ryan Fitzpatrick went down. Great. Just great. Long term, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you guys are. I'm glad you guys are all happy. I'm glad you guys are, you know, running around doing the funky chicken and the kitten play and the James Brown when we won the um, NFC least. Short sighted thinking. 
Didn't mean shit to me. I knew we were going to get our asses whooped by Tampa Bay. And I knew that we missed an opportunity to draft a franchise quarterback who could save us from down the road, who could even save us from the ineptitude and the dysfunction of Daniel Snyder. Don't know if even someone as great with the potential of being great as Trevor Lawrence could have saved us from Daniel Snyder. Don't even know if someone with the talent and potential of Justin Fields, even if he reaches max potential, could save us from the ineptitude of Daniel Snyder. But damn, I sure know one thing. It ain't Taylor, Taylor Heineke. Washington went 3-14 and 14 on third down attempts. So the defense for Dallas was fantastic. And you think about it, the one bad outing against the Raiders on Thanksgiving where they lost in overtime, giving up 36 points. The defense for Dallas has been, has been good over the last five years. Five games, excuse me. Yeah, they played against the Falcons in Kansas City, New Orleans and Washington. You know, speaking Tyler Haneke and a depleted quarterback room in New Orleans and the Falcons, you know, their problems. But yet and still, the defense played well enough to where if the offense would play like they did earlier this season, yeah, we could be speaking about Dallas being really true Super Bowl contenders. Again, we talk about Arizona, Arizona, the shortcomings and the concerns that we have for Arizona moving forward. What about the Dallas Cowboys? If their offense continues to play like it, it's been the last uh, four, five, six games. Against an injury-depleted Washington football team this past Saturday and Sunday, Dallas only had 323 total yards. That's four yards per pass play, 4.7 yards per pass attempts on 39 pass attempts. So 323 total yards on four yards per play and 4.7 yards per pass on 39 attempts. Dak Prescott, did you see that interception he threw? What in the flu? And everybody said, why did you throw it? Why should he throw it? Why? Because Dak Prescott at one time was considered to be an MVP type quarterback. Because Dak Prescott, with the salary that he has, should be able to handle that responsibility. Dak Prescott was playing at a level to where, why wouldn't you put the ball in the hands of Dak Prescott? When was the last time you saw Prescott make that type of throw? If Prescott is going to be given the same responsibility as franchise or elite quarterbacks or quarterbacks making that type of money, the Aaron Rodgers, the Tom Brady's, the, you know, that, that, that type of level. Well, then why would you not have in a situation like that, put the ball in the hands of Dak Prescott? Now, you know, that, that pass was beyond horrendous. Not even in your worst nightmares. Would you think that uh, Prescott would throw a pass like that? But he did. It was intercepted and made the game very, very interesting for the game. Against Washington, he went 22 of 39, 211 yards, one touchdown, two interceptions. Jerry Jones on his radio show uh, today, recording this on Tuesday, was like talking about, hey, man, it's fair to say that he's in a slump. You take a look at the last uh, six games in which Dallas has gone four and two. He's been throwing Prescott. He's thrown eight touchdown passes and six interceptions while throwing for 1,568 yards on 239 pass attempts, completing 151 of them. Before he sustained an injury, which caused him to miss the game, the first six games before that injury, he had 16 touchdown passes with just uh, four interceptions while throwing for over 1,800 yards and completing 158 of his 216 passes. So is he in a slump? Yes, he's in a slump, but uh, he's not the only one. The running game has had zero impact. Ezekiel Elliott, I'm sorry, wasn't he one of the more highly compensated running backs in the game. Well, this man is averaging less than 3.5 yards per carry. The Ezekiel Elliott 
that every that had everybody nervous when he was down in Cabo waiting for that new contract extension. The Ezekiel Elliott that came in the league from Ohio State and ripped it up. The Ezekiel Elliott who would make the feed me motion every time he got a first down and was a handful, was a bitch to uh, tackle. I'm sorry. I don't think that Ezekiel Elliott is coming back because he hasn't shown it so far as far as a consistent basis is concerned. Again, averaging less than 3.5 yards per carry. He hasn't run for 50 yards in the game since the 7th of November. He's only had two 100-yard games this season. The guy that tore up the league, the guy that was supposed to be a premier running back, I don't know, I don't think, I don't believe that running back is ever coming back. I think, I don't know if he left that, I don't know if he left his game in Cabo on the sands of Cabo as he was working out. I don't know if uh, when he was throwing beads in New Orleans for girls who were lifting up their shirts, I don't know if he, along with the beads, threw out his talent, but uh, we haven't seen it. And I think at his age, his carry, his wear and tear, don't think that's coming back. Tony Pollard missed the game against Washington because of an injury, I think, to his foot. He's only averaging eight yards per, eight carries per game. He hasn't ran for over 50 yards since October 10th. So many people were sitting up talking about, hey, Tony Pollard might be better than Ezekiel Elliott. Well, Tony Pollard hadn't shown that he can tote the bucket for a for, you know, 15, 20, 22 carries per game like uh, Elliott had shown in the past. So you take a look at the Cowboys' remaining schedule. They're at the New York Giants, then at home against Washington, Arizona, and then finishes on the road against Philadelphia. I don't know, man. We'll we'll see in terms of what's going to be happening with the Dallas Cowboys turning things around. But the NFC, the conference is starting to take shape. Questions remain for some teams. Again, on any given Saturday or Sunday in the playoffs, anything can happen. But uh looks like we're settling down to what should be a pretty interesting. Ah, there I go. I used that term interesting again. What should be a pretty interesting race for the chase to get the um, to get the um, Super Bowl trophy in the NFC. Going to be exciting. Going to be interesting. Can't wait to uh, see how everything plays out. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I've got to give the people what they want. I've got to give the sport fans what they want. I've got to give the sports fans of Los Angeles, California what they want. I've got to give the sports fans of Tennessee what they want. I've got to give the sports fans of Germany what they want. I've got to give 
the sports fans of Australia and Canada and Albany, New York and Washington, D.C. and New York City and Miami, Florida and Birmingham, Alabama and Dallas, Texas and South Dakota and North Dakota and Seattle, Washington. I've got to give them what they want. I've got to give the folks of San Francisco what they want. I've got to give the people of South Africa what they want. I've got to give the people of Brazil what they want. I've got to give them good quality sports talk. I've got to give them a unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that they can listen to. I've got to give them what they want. Mission accomplished. I'm giving you what you want. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So very presumptuous of me, shall I say? Wendell, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what is happening in the world of sports. Speaking about what's happening in the NFL. Spoke about the NFC. Talked about the Monday night football game between the Rams and Arizona. Spoke about some of the vulnerabilities of some of these teams. Again, everybody isn't going to go on the assumption. Shouldn't say everybody. That's presumptuous. Going to go to the storyline of many people are going to be saying, hey, the Arizona Cardinals. See, I told you, Cliff Kingsbury. You see how we handled the end of the uh, football game last night? You see how the offense is being run? You see the lack of experience, of playoff success, of lack of playoff experience that the Arizona Cardinals have. You see that the fact that you've got Kyler Murray, yes. You've got DeAndre Hopkins, yes. But, you know, overall, what type of team do they have when you're going to be placing them up against the Green Bay Packers who went through the NFC Championship game last year and was a Kenny King display away from going to the Super Bowl. Aaron Rodgers, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, one of the greatest quarterbacks of his generation. The talent level of the Green Bay Packers mixed in with the playoff experience. How in the world are the Arizona Cardinals going to deal with that? How are the Arizona Cardinals of 5'9", Kyler Murray, and ex-Texas Tech uh, coach Cliff Kingsbury, who was five games under 500, how are they going to deal with the GOAT, Tom Brady? How are they going to deal with the offensive weapons of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? How are they going to deal with the experience of winning a Super Bowl, Tom Brady winning seven Super Bowls? How are they going to deal with that? How are they going to deal with the high acumen of defensive coordinator Todd Bowles and offensive coordinator should be coach very, very soon head coach in the NFL, Byron Lefwich. How in the world are the Arizona Cardinals going to deal with that on any giving playoff Saturday night, Sunday morning? You never know. We haven't even spoke about some teams who might shock the world. Why can't my Washington football team Shock the world. Why can't the Philadelphia Eagles sneak into the playoffs and have Jalen Hurts play the game of his life against a rusty Green Bay Packers squad that had played in a couple of weeks? We see it all the time. We've seen teams who were the number one seeds who looked like they had an easy path to go to the Super Bowl lose in the first round because they took the pedal off the metal in terms of what they were doing. All of a sudden, they started resting players. All of a sudden, now you get one week off and you get two weeks off to rest and rejuvenate and recuperate from injuries and stuff. And you see this team that's barely making it in the playoff, but yet still have been in playoff mode for the past five or six weeks before they get into the playoffs. So they continue with that mojo. They continue with that momentum. And all of a sudden now, this team will finish 16-1, and one, or well, before you go to 17 games. But you see these teams that come in 14-2 and two and 13-3, and three and they're the bee's knees and everything. And all of a sudden, it takes them a quarter of a half. It takes them sometimes a half to go ahead and get their mojo going. And by that time, it's too late. 
We see that all the time. We saw that with the Green Bay Packers. We saw that with the New York Giants. We saw that with John Elway's Denver Broncos. We've seen that with Joe Montana's San Francisco 49ers. We have seen that before. So why can't it happen to the Packers? Why can't it happen to this season's Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Moving to the other side, why can't that happen to the New England Patriots who have already experienced a situation like that years ago when the number one rated New England Patriots lost to the Rex uh, Rex Ryan and Mark Sanchez New York Jets a game famously known afterwards where uh, what was it Bart Scott told Sal Palin, Sal uh, Sal Panantonio whatever the guy's name is uh, who's next or we're next or can't wait or some nonsense like that so it can happen it can happen so while Arizona your thoughts and feelings about them might be that of the negative after losing to the LA Rams. Hey man, just don't go on the assumption that all of a sudden now the, um, that the Arizona Cardinals are pretenders and going to be no match once they get into the NFL playoffs. Wendell's world of sports. I'm your host Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Now we move to the AFC and with the AFC, when you speak about the storylines, it's all about this because the Indianapolis Colts and the, New England Patriots had bye week. So let's just focus on what's going on in Kansas City. Kansas City, Kansas City, here I come. Keeps getting better and better and closer to what we thought they would be when the season started, right? Everybody was going to assume that the Kansas City football team was going to go ahead and continue their dominance in the AFC. And they were just a bad game and bad offensive line performance from getting slaughtered and the Super Bowl against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But they were going to regroup. They were going to get it back together. The band was back together with Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes. And yeah, it was just a little detour for uh, some of the players, for Patrick Mahomes already being regarded as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. And this game in the Super Bowl against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers was going to be his coronation to already being considered one of the all-time great quarterbacks and Andy Reid and all this type of stuff. So I don't know <clears throat> when they started off slowly this season. I don't know if it was because of the hangover that they had in the Super Bowl for that Super Bowl loss. I don't know what it was. Teams started to figure them out. I don't know what it was, but um, they're starting to get things rolling. I tell you one thing, if they could play the Las Vegas Raiders every week, yeah, that would be a dynasty in the making, man. Because if you take a look at the six-game winning streak that they've been on and winning seven of the last uh, eight games, the the games where they've looked the most on offense, like the Kansas City football team from 2018, 19, and 20, have been against the Las Vegas Raiders. Every, everybody else, there's been questions. But against the Raiders, they've put up 40-plus points each time. Sunday night football game a few weeks ago, and then this past one uh, weekend, 48-9. So you take a look at the uh, Kansas City's remaining schedule. Next week is going to be the game that I'm interested in. Next week is going to be the telltale sign of how good they really are. Now, they're not going to be playing the Patriots. They're not going to be playing the Titans. They're not going to be in a rematch with any of those squads. But despite the six-game winning streak and the assumption that, oh, everything is now back to normal because Patrick Mahomes is doing his thing and the defense have uh, has stepped up and played well, that all of a sudden now we're almost forgetting the fact that Kansas City isn't running away with the division. They're only one game ahead in the AFC West 
over the Los Angeles Chargers with Justin Herbert, who's been playing some pretty good football. Inconsistent, but when they play well, they play well. Next week, on the road against the Chargers, that will be the game I'm more interested in. I'm I'm still not I'm still not telling Kansas City football teams or football fans that you're back just because you beat the Raiders. Because you've had their number, if I could use that cliche. But and you take a look at outside of the Raiders, as I mentioned before in my last podcast, especially on offense, Kansas City hasn't been reminding anybody of the juggernaut that they were on offense for the past three seasons. So for me, more validation is going to be earned if they can go ahead on the road and get this win against the Los Angeles Chargers. If the defense continues to play well like it's been doing, then yeah, you'll have like my eye opening. Okay, all right. Because many people, I keep saying the word many people. I keep using that phrase, many people. There's a thought process going that, ooh, could you imagine if we're speaking about the Super Bowl where it's a rematch from an earlier regular season game between the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the New England Patriots? Could you imagine how flipping insane that would be in terms of coverage? You take a look right now, man. The only team I think on the outside looking in that has a real chance to end that dream, at least in the AFC, I think there's two teams. I think it's the Kansas City football team, and I think it's the Indianapolis Colts. I don't know about Buffalo. I don't know about the Chargers. I think they have a chance. So you're trying to tell me there's a chance. I think there's a chance, of course, that the Chargers or Buffalo, if Cincinnati can get in, if, I mean, Cleveland, what the flip. But if you're taking a look at the odds in terms of who has the best chance to upend New England's opportunity to play in the Super Bowl, I think the top two teams are going to be the Kansas City football team and and the Indianapolis Colts. Now, we're going to learn a lot about the Colts because they're playing they're playing this weekend. They're playing what? They're playing uh, New England. So that'll be a little preview of what could happen. But man, if you're New England, Tennessee, Kansas City, and Baltimore, you do not want to see who we are right now, the division leaders. You do not want to see the Indianapolis Colts in the playoffs. You do not want to see that team. Yeah, the Chargers have Justin Herbert. Shit, everyone's talking about Kyler Murray, what type of uh, performance he can give with his lack of playoff experience. People are talking about, you know, what is Matthew Stafford, a decade-plus veteran, going to give the Rams once they get into the playoffs. Well, everyone who's cackling about the San Diego Los Angeles Chargers, and they're speaking about Justin Herbert, Justin Herbert, what the hell has Justin Herbert done in the playoffs to give you guys the ammunition to say, watch out Patriots, watch out Chiefs, watch out Baltimore, watch out Colts, watch out Bills. What's given, what has Justin Herbert done to uh, put fear in those teams if you're going to calculate that Kyler Murray is not going to be the same guy when the Arizona Cardinals get in the playoffs or Matthew Stafford is not going to be that same guy or there's questions still to be answered with Matthew Stafford because of his lack of playoff experience. You better add in Justin Herbert also if you're going to be um, speaking that narrative. So for me, hey man, for New England, it's the Kansas City football team and it's the Indianapolis Colts followed by the Buffalo Bills. But we have to go ahead and also see again, man, Josh Allen in a walking boot. They got to run that football. And I'm not just saying with Josh Allen. You got to get some type of running game. You can't have Josh Allen try to be Lamar and what Kyler Murray did as far as your offense is concerned. And he still throws up these 
Brett Favre, Jameis Winston when he was in Tampa Bay his last season type of passes, Patrick Mahomes type of passes earlier in the season where it's kind of like, what are you doing? What are you throwing? What were your what were you thinking? What was your reasoning behind those passes? So the defense is good enough to get it done. The defense, yeah, the ability for some of the bigger, stronger teams to run the football all on them has been categorized, has been duly doted. But I think the defense is good enough to have Buffalo make it to the championship game, make it to the Super Bowl. But Josh Allen, I don't know what the status is with his foot. I don't know what his recovery powers are. I don't know once he recovers. I don't think he's going to be missing any time. But a situation where if the Bills clinch a playoff spot going into week 17, 18, or the last week of the season, I don't think Josh Allen will be playing and going into the playoffs. He's not going to be 100%, but with that foot, how much of a detriment is that injury going to be, especially the way they ask him to uh, handle the offense, the responsibilities that he has on the offense. That would be the two things that would kind of scare me. Allen has not had the impact that he had last season, and Def- Stephon Diggs, him and Stephon Diggs, hasn't uh, developed the chemistry this season uh, that they did last uh, season. But uh, again, they get on a roll a little bit. They go ahead and get some things done. Who knows with Buffalo because of that defense. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. The Cincinnati Bengals on the outside looking in. In fact, let me go ahead and do this. Let me go ahead and name you the AFC standings as of through 13 games. The division leaders, of course, the number one seed is the New England Patriots at 9-4. and four. The number two seed, Tennessee Titans, they're at 9-4. and four. The number three seed, Kansas City football teams, or used to be champions, defending conference champions, they're at 9-4. and four. The number four seed and falling, flailing, fast, the Baltimore Ravens, 8-5. and five. We don't know what the significance, we don't know what the uh, injury status is of Lamar Jackson. And again, coming back, if he comes back, when he comes back, we don't know how much of that injury is going to negate some of his strengths as far as running the football and such, which could definitely impact when you're speaking about how much responsibility that Lamar Jackson has for that Baltimore offense. But leaders of the AFC East, New England, leaders of the AFC South, Tennessee, leaders of the AFC West, the Kansas City football team, and leaders of the AFC North, your Baltimore Ravens at eight and five. The wild card number five is the Los Angeles Chargers at eight and five. Number six, the Indianapolis Colts at seven and six. And number seven in the last seed to get in, the Buffalo Bills. They are at seven and six. On the outside looking in, you've got the number eight seeded Cleveland Browns. Really don't know what to make of that performance on Sunday. Baker Mayfield looked a lot better, recuperating well from the buy in terms of some of the healing, some of the things that he needed to uh, feel better as far as injuries are concerned, the shoulder and such, he looked better. But still, Baker Mayfield questions about whether he can be a guy without the running game, Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb firing at all cylinders. Can he be a guy that can really make an impact if the Cleveland Browns sneak into the playoffs? Right now, they're just on the outside looking in at number eight with a seven and six record. The number nine seed, the Cincinnati Bengals, seven and six, tough loss over this past weekend in overtime against the San Francisco 49ers. But when you lose to the New York Jets, even in a game where you played as well as you did, that's going to haunt you. That's going to hurt you. They're number nine to seven and six. Still yet and still Cleveland and Cincinnati, one game out of first place in the 
AFC North. And like I mentioned before, with the injury to Lamar Jackson, an opening could be there to take that position. Denver coming in at number 10. They're 7-6. Pittsburgh, number 11, 6-6-1. Six, 6-6-1, six, 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 yeah. So on the bottom of the conference, we've got the Las Vegas Char- uh, Las Vegas Chargers charge. Las Vegas Raiders coming in at 6-7. Number 13, Miami Dolphins, who... I'm going to be interested to see. They had a bye week. I'm going to be interested to see if they can run the table and finish the season 10-7 and see what happens. Tua Tungavailoa looks like Drew Brees. He has the arm strength of Drew Brees and Peyton Manning at the end of their careers, but doesn't have the football intelligence just due to lack of experience. But that defense for Miami is physical. That running game, missing, um, missing the power, missing the impact, but their defense is good enough to put Miami in a position where it could be interesting for those guys. They're at number 13 at 6 and 7. The Jets are number 14. They're 3 and 10. And eliminated from the playoffs are the number 15 seeded Houston Texans at 2 and 11. And shocking beyond shock, last but not least, but forgettable, your Jacksonville Jaguars sitting dead last in the AFC with a record of 2 and 11. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So as I mentioned before, some of the teams that I think would uh, give both New England and Kansas City a little bit of a run in the playoffs, the Chargers, Indy, and Buffalo. I'm interested to see moving forward exactly how much how much Kansas City has come, and both offensively and defensively in terms of are they back for real. I'm, I'm, I'm still apprehensive just a little bit. I still don't know if Kansas City can reach that level to what they were a couple of seasons ago. How close can they get to that level that they were for a couple of seasons? And on defense, how much is this of playing against quarterbacks who aren't really that great? How much is it a mirage? And again, San Diego, excuse me, Los Angeles, that's the second time I did that. Los Angeles is going to give them a true test in terms of quarterback play going up against a quarterback and Justin Herbert. And a team in the Chargers who have really something to play for on the playing in Los Angeles, it'll see, it'll be interesting to see how Kansas City responds to that. So the ASC is tight, it's tuck, it's close, it's parody driven, it's good football, it's exciting football, it's interesting football, just like the NFC going down the home stretch. It's going to be interesting to see who comes out. Who comes in? And you know what? I'm going to give a special dedication to the Buffalo Bills in terms of Josh Allen's injury. I'm going to give a little special dedication to the Baltimore Ravens with Lamar Jackson and his foot injury. I'm going to give a special dedication to the Kansas City football team and their defense and the week-to-week improvement of the Kansas City football team. I'm even going to give a special dedication to the Jacksonville Jaguars, the muck, the dysfunction, the embarrassment for that squad. I'm going to say a little prayer. I'm going to say a little prayer for you. The the moment tomorrow when I wake up at 445, before I think about a beautiful female who's going to put on some makeup, before I do all those things, I'm going to say a little prayer for those squads. And while combing my hair now and wondering which clothes I'm going to wear now, I'm going to be thinking about and say a little prayer for the Buffalo Bills and the Los Angeles Chargers and the Kansas City football team, and the Tennessee Titans, who are expected to get Derrick Henry back 
in January or before the playoffs start. I want to say a little prayer for those squads. But you know what? I ain't going to say a little prayer for them right now. I'm going to let the queen, I'm going to let the greatest of them all, I'm going to let Miss Aretha Franklin say a little prayer for you guys. So, Miss Franklin, if you would, for Lamar, for Josh, for Derek, for Urban, please say a little prayer for them if you would. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Goodness gracious, that woman could sing. Mm, 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 like an absolute angel. Like an angel. If she sings like the Lord looks. Woo, I'm telling you, man. Ooh, Lord have mercy. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. You know, someone who needs a prayer is Urban Meyer. Someone please tell me again. Please tell me again, how in the world did Urban Meyer get this opportunity to coach in the NFL and coach the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars? And, and and how much longer is he going to be able to keep his current position? I, I have no idea what the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars con. I don't have I have no idea what he means, what he's talking about when he says that we're not going to rush into a decision in terms of whether Meyer gets to keep his job or not. What 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 exactly? Should, what, what exactly are the pros and cons of Urban Meyer keeping this job? What, what is it about the realization? What is it about the discussion that they're going to be having that Urban Meyer needs to keep his job? Who's going to be in the corner to say, well, you know, maybe we should give him another chance or maybe we should give him another year. What, what exactly are the reasons why Urban Meyer should come back and coach this team, any team in the NFL? Now, something's going to tell me that it's going to be a mutual decision at the end of the season that Urban Meyer is going to retire again from coaching. He's going to talk about the stress. He's going to say, thank you very much for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. It was a blast. It was wonderful. Yes, I made some mistakes, but, uh, you know, I, I, I grew from this as a human being and I grew from this as a coach. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience and I thought it was awesome. I want to thank the players. He's going to do all of this nonsense. And I'm not saying that then he's going to go back and coach college football. I think this is going to be his last gig. I think he's going to go back to uh, Fox, the college football, being enough college football analyst, enjoy that life. The man is damn near 60 years old. He's not going to want to uh, jump back into college football the way it is now with NIL and with the transfer portal. I just think, and, and really, what jobs are there that's going to open that Urban Meyer is going to want to jump into where he's going to want to get back to winning after a season which he had at Jacksonville, if he would take another job, if he would go back to college, someone would tell me he would have to take a job where it's ready-made for him to uh, 
play for the national championship or vie for the national championship. Alabama ain't opening up. Uh, USC, that job was already taken. Uh, Georgia isn't opening up. Ohio State isn't opening up. I don't know what other job there is where Urban Meyer can come in and enjoy ultimate success year one. Because you don't go through what Urban Meyer went through after all the years of winning and after all the years of success that he had at the college level, you don't then go back and take a job where you're going to be in there for two or three years and you're going to be seven and six or eight and four or something like that. So I don't think Urban Meyer is going to uh, get back into coaching. I think this was the final itch he needed to scratch in terms of his coaching career is concerned. He found out that he is not made for the NFL, just like Steve Spurrier found out very quickly that he was not made for the NFL, that he was a college coach, just like Nick Saban found out that he was not made to be a head coach at the NFL level, that his his uh, his niche is in college, just like Lou Holtz long ago found out that coaching the New York Jets, being an NFL head coach, is not for him. So all of these coaches, for the most part, are going to figure out, always figure out, especially when you're speaking about college coaches, that you know what, it's a whole new ball game, especially when you're speaking about highly successful coaches in college you then go and try it in the NFL they're just not built man they're just not. if you're talking about Urban Meyer who spent damn near 20 years winning 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 and having a bad year for him is losing two games and you get to the point in your career where you're the end all the be all where you're basically running a university you're basically running the football program you're basically running the community you're basically running the city the region sometimes the state it's kind of hard to uh, humble yourself and go to the NFL. I don't give a damn if he took over the New England Patriots or the Kansas City football team, or I don't care what program that he took over. You're not going to have the success in the NFL that you had in college. And not only that, you're not going to be the same guy in college as you are in the NFL concerning your stature. Man, in Gainesville, Florida, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, in Columbus, Ohio, in Norman, Oklahoma, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in Austin, Texas, in Clemson, South Carolina. Yeah, man, you could be the king of the concrete. You could be the king of the hill, man. You could be the, when I jump, you say how high. You could be the big guy in the state. You can be all of those things, man. You can say whenever, you know, you can turn the gray skies blue and you can make it rain whenever you wanted to. You can shoot somebody right there in the center of the uh, university and still no one's going to give a damn because you're winning, you're winning, you're winning. You are the man. You are the celebrity. You are all of those things. You are this and a bag of chips. When you're in the NFL, that is all about the players. It's all about the players quarterback franchise that 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 is the most important person in your organization it ain't the coach with the possible exception of bill belichick and bill belichick got that by winning 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 over a long long period of time with one organization and that's a very very unique situation other than that you you are expendable when you're a coach in the NFL. I don't give a damn how many Super Bowls that you won. I don't give a damn what your regular season record is. I don't care how many All-Pros and All-Stars and Pro Bowl players you produce. You are not the end-all, the be-all. The sun doesn't doesn't, uh, set and rise on your ass. So for Urban Meyer, who is just accustomed to, you know, Gainesville, Florida, and Columbus, Ohio, and... Uh, Bowling Green, wherever that wherever that is in Ohio, or you know Salt Lake City, and you know wherever he's at, <clears throat> where he's just the man. This, it doesn't work like that in Jacksonville. 
You're not the most important person in that organization, Urban. Trevor Lawrence is. Now, they're not going to get rid of Trevor Lawrence. They're going to get rid of you. And these coaches just can't handle it. <clears throat> these coaches who have been highly successful, they just can't handle it. Their ego just can't handle it. So they, they, they think they know everything. Because why? Because it worked for them in college. So when you read this report by Tom Pelissero in, the, in, in uh, NFL.com, and just talking about the dysfunction and just talking about some of the bullshit that's going on in Jacksonville, it's like, yeah, no flipping kidding. They were embarrassed again against uh, Tennessee this past Sunday, falling to 2-11. and 11. Workmanlike, professional, do what you had to do performance against a team they should have beaten like a drum when you're speaking about Tennessee. Trevor Lawrence threw four interceptions. Um, he was sacked three times. He was, uh, you know, he, he had a bad game. All of the interceptions were a direct result of pressure, not blitzes. So then you get the story written again by Tom Pelissero outlining what some of the nonsense is going on, tension boiling over between Coach Urban Meyer, Jaguar players, staff amongst a 2-11 and start. Months of tension surrounding Jaguars coach Urban Meyer has boiled over with multiple run-ins with players and other coaches in recent weeks, renewing questions in league circles about whether Meyer's stay in Jacksonville could end after just one tumultuous season. According to sources, Meyer's repeated public comments shifting blame to the players and coaches have exacerbated frustration in the building with his hard-charging and sometimes condescending approach, a style many observers believe wouldn't work in the NFL even before the Jaguars hired him. You would think, being a smart man like Urban Meyer is, you would think that he would have asked somebody. He did his due diligence even before he decided to uh, take the job. He called some of his ex-players and asked about it. He called around in the league to ask about it. You would have thought that once he got hired by a team like Jacksonville that he would humble himself just a little bit to first learn some of the nuances of what it takes to be a head football coach and applying some of the things that he learned in college, what can be used in the NFL, what cannot be used in the NFL. A smart, successful man like Urban Meyer, you would have thought that he would have adjusted some to make himself palatable for success in the NFL. New, no, new, no, new. No. During the past two weeks, receiver Marvin Jones, one of the locker room's most respected and mild-mannered veterans, became so angry with Myers' public and private criticism of the receiver group that he left the facility until other staff members convinced him to come back and had a heated argument with Meyer during practice. During a staff, this is going to, this is the one that's going to go down in infamy. This is the one that's going to uh, stand the test of time. You know, when Lou Holtz trying to get the New York Jets to sing a fight song or just like uh, Bobby Petrino with the pig suey when he uh, was hired by Arkansas about 15 minutes after he left Atlanta and told Arthur Blank, the owner, that, oh, I'm not going anywhere. What are you talking about? This is going to go down in infamy as one of these, like, you know, hey, man, this is like ridiculous. This is where you knew that they had jumped, jumped the shark. During a staff meeting, Meyer delivered a biting message that he's a winner and his assistant coaches are losers. According to several people informed to the contents of the meeting, Meyer challenged each coach individually to explain when they're, explain they've, Meyer challenged each coach individually to explain when they've ever won and forcing them to defend their resumes. After opening the preseason with consecutive losses, sources say Meyer informs assistants that he was sick of being embarrassed. And if the team didn't start winning immediately, some of them wouldn't be around for a second year. That was in the pre-flipping season. 
And again, Meyer challenged each coach individually to explain when they've ever won, forcing them to defend their resumes, the most recent one, delivering a biting message that he's a winner and his assistant coaches are loser, losers. You're the one that hired these people, Urban. How can you be a winner and then you're hiring a bunch of losers? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. If you were a winner, you know what a winner looks like. You know what a winner sounds like, right? So how in the world can you then shift the blame and then, you know, throw your assistants under the bus by saying, hey, don't look at me for the team being as bad as they are. My assistants are losers. I'm a winner. I'm above all this. What the hell are you doing, man? What the hell are you talking about? Are you serious? Are you that arrogant? Are you that clueless? Are you that hubris? Are you that privileged? Man, you've got to be kidding me. Kidding me. After opening preseason, after opening preseason with consecutive losses, he informed the assistant that he was sick of being embarrassed. Consecutive losses in the preseason. And if the team didn't start winning immediately, some of them wouldn't be around for a second year. You hear this situation recently? One of the best players on the team running back, James Robinson, was benched last week in a cloud of circumstances, a cloud of circumstances, contrary to his public statements that if it was injury-related, Meyer ordered Robinson's benching after an opening drive fumble in last week's 37-7 uh, to road loss to the Rams. Then he had running backs coach Bernie Parmerly stop Robinson from reentering the game, assisting Carlos Hyde, who played for Meyer at, at Ohio State, stay in. It was only after Lawrence questioned Meyer on the sideline about Robinson's absence was Robinson allowed to return late in the second quarter. <laughs> what? And then he was like, oh, I don't know. I, I'm not, you know, I don't micromanage. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why uh, Robinson wasn't in the game. I, 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 it wasn't my decision. Bullshit. Very good, Urban. Now your team knows that you're full of shit and you're a liar on top of everything else. On top of being, after treating those uh, adults like children, like, oh, I don't know, 18 to 22 year olds, what you've been used to having been a college coach for your whole life. You're treating grown men like they're teenagers. And then on top of that, you're up there lying. You're up there, how could, you know, just a bold faced lie is not even close. How can you gain any respect from your, from your players and your coaches, man? I mean, that's not like, you know, something that's like, you know, out of this world fantastic to know about. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Shad Khan, I don't know how you can seriously consider bringing this guy back. I don't know. After Sunday's loss against Tennessee, Jacksonville has lost five games in a row and has averaged around 10 points per game during that span. They've lost these games by an average of 26 to 10 if you factor in the wins to kind of even it out. Franchise quarterback Trevor Lawrence completing 58% of his passes for 2,500 yards with nine touchdowns and 10 interceptions. And everybody thought, hey, you know, we'll, you know, drafting Trevor Lawrence and we bring back Urban Meyer, the guy who had so much success when he was the coach at the University of Florida. Woohoo! We'll be able to, uh, you know, generate some type of uh, fan base and some type of enthusiasm and we'll really get that stadium to be packed because everybody's going to want to come to the Jacksonville Jaguar game to see Urban Meyer coach. Trevor Lawrence, yeah, fine, but we'll, we all want to go see Urban Meyer coach. What? Well, guess what? That bullshit don't work if you're not winning. The Jaguars currently rank 30th in the, in the NFL in the tennis. It was the same shit with um, Johnny Manziel. I remember when Dan Patrick was like, hey, you know what? The Cleveland Browns, I forgot who had the number one pick, but it was like, they need to draft Johnny Manziel, number one, because he's such an exciting player. And, you know, he'll have... 
people going to the uh, stadium to see him play and to see him do a thing like he did at Texas A&M and, you know, the immediate um, uh, bump and the immediate uh, explosion of enthusiasm with ticket sales and jerseys, his jersey flying off the rack and the number one seller and all this type of stuff. Okay, Dan, that might be great at the beginning, but if Johnny Manziel can't play and the Cleveland Browns continue to stink, guess what? Halfway through the season, no one's going to be, well, I shouldn't say anybody, hardly anybody's going to be going to their games. No one's going to be interested to see anybody play if the team is going to be 2-8 and eight or 3-7 and seven or 4-11. and 11. No one's going to be out there to say, yeah, let's go ahead and pack the stadium so we can see this quarterback run around and throw interceptions and throw incompletions and give us no chance to win because he's exciting. What's exciting about a team that's 3-11? and 11? What's exciting about a team that's 5-9? and nine? What's exciting about a team that has no chance to win? What's exciting about a team that's dysfunctional? What's exciting about watching a coach coach who can't coach at an NFL level? What's exciting about that? Nothing. Zero. If they were going to generate any type of interest and fill up the stadium to watch Jacksonville play, it wouldn't be because of Urban Meyer. I don't give a damn if the Jaguars were 13-0. They'd be going out there to watch James Robinson. They would be going out there to rush, watch Trevor Lawrence. They would be going out there to watch the players play exciting winning football. No one goes to the stadium. No one goes to an arena to watch coaches coach or managers manage. They go to be entertained. There's nothing entertaining about watching a coach coach, regardless of who he is, regardless of what the sport is. Wow. <laughs> That's just unbelievable. Unbelievable in terms of, yeah, you know, we can go ahead and hire him and Texas sales will go through the roof. You better win. And if you win, no one's going to be going there because Urban Meyer is there. This is going down as one of the worst hires in the NFL over the past 30 years. Seriously, when everything is all said and done, look, what's your definition of the worst hire? Are we speaking about just based on records? Because, you know, Marty Morningwig for two seasons went 5-27 and 27 in Detroit uh, some years ago. Hugh Jackson went 0-16 in Cleveland, and I think he went 3-36 and 36 and won over two and a half seasons when he was with the Browns. That's the worst record that a head coach has recorded while being a uh, coach of an NFL team for at least 40 games. Steve Spagnuolo. Three seasons at the Rams head coach, he went 10 and 38, finishing 1 and 15 in 2009 and 2 and 14 in 2011. So, you know, David Shula hired by the Bengals at the age of 32 only because his father was named Don. He went 15 and 52. Sorry, he went 19 and 52 in four and a half years as head coach with the Bengals. So, yeah, man, there's been some situations. Lane Kiffin, that joke of a clown, when he was hired by the Oakland Raiders at the age of 31 in 2007, and he went 5-15 and 15 overall and drove Al Davis to the point where he was actually giving in-depth interviews in terms of using a camera and slideshow on why he had to fire Lane Kiffin. I mean, there's been different degrees, different definitions on what makes a pathetic hiring, what makes a terrible hiring. Again, some people just go by straight record. Of the people just go by the farce of why would you even hire this guy to begin with, Bobby Petrino. That situation, again, December 10th, 2007, Atlanta Falcons with a 3-10 and record. He resigned to become the head coach at Arkansas less than 24 hours after promising Arthur Blank that he was staying in Atlanta. And then he left that, what, four-sentence note on the player's locker 
before he left, didn't even have the guts, didn't even have the backbone, didn't even have the balls to look him in the eye and tell him that he was leaving, that he was abandoning them, that he was quitting on them. Yeah, that's going to go down. Bobby Petrino, I think when everything is all said and done, Bobby Petrino and Urban Meyer, those two names in terms of NFL circles are concerned are just going to be absolute trash. Absolute trash. Again, that's just, I mean, with Urban Meyer, all this bullshit, we're not even taking into account the fact that when he was first hired, one of his first hires as head coach was to pick strength and conditioning coach Chris Doyle who then resigned under pressure in February when alleged, you know, then allegations of racial remarks uh, when he was at, when he was a strength and conditioning coach at Iowa came about. Then in July, he was the NFL fined the Jaguars $200,000 and Meyer $100,000 for violating rules on organized team activities and docked the team two OTA days in 2022. Then in September, the NFL Players Association announced it was launching an investigation after Meyer acknowledged to reporters that the team factored vaccination status into cut-down decisions. In October, videos and photos of Meyer appearing at an event dancing with a young woman that wasn't his wife. The videos were shot in the days following a loss to the Bengals that dropped the uh, Jaguars record to 0-4. Then there was the bullshit of giving a, uh, an attaboy tryout to Tim Tebow, not at quarterback, which you couldn't play, but at, at tight end, which made it even worse. Then you're speaking about staff changes during the season when people saw that, man, this motherfucker don't know what the fuck he's doing. Special teams coordinator Brian uh, Snyder took a leave of absence in May for personal reasons and never came back. Uh, Myers chief of staff, Fernando Lovo, left the team last month to return to the University of Texas. According to On3.com, tight ends coach Tyler Bowen is expected to become the offensive coordinator at Virginia Tech. So he left. So... There's going to be more max exodus of assistant coaches with NFL experience. They're not going to be dealing with this bullshit anymore. They're not going to be dealing with this nonsense anymore. So even if you come back, even if Urban Meyer comes back, who's going to want to work for this guy? Who's going to want to work for a lame coach? Not unless you're saying, man, by the time we're halfway through next season, we're 0-6 and we're still doing the same bullshit that we're doing now. At least I'll have my opportunity to be a coach, be it at the interim level. Who's gonna want and who's gonna want to work for this guy? Who throws his assistants under the bus like this? A fucking college coach with no NFL coaching experience whatsoever, having defend having to defend their resumes because you're a college coach who doesn't have one ounce of experience in the NFL before he took this gig, called you a loser and called himself a winner. That's the guy you want to work for? That's the guy who said after two preseason games threatened to not keep their jobs after the season because he's in, he's tired of being embarrassed like this after two preseason games? If you're an NFL coach with any NFL experience, that's the guy you want to work for? <laughs> Man, do the right thing. Get rid of this guy. Get rid of this guy. This this has been an absolute joke. And of course, you know, he keeps embarrassing himself. The handshake that he had with uh, the coach for Tennessee after the game was over because, uh, you know, the coach, Mike Vrabel, uh, was the coach at Ohio State when Meyer was the coach. Maybe he's upset because he's 100 times better than the NFL coach that Meyer could ever be. I don't know. But the body language says, I quit. The everything just says, 
I quit. I can't wait till the season's over. I'm done with this bullshit. I'm tired. I just want to leave. Someone get me out of here. Let this nightmare be over. You think from those on the outside who know really nothing except for what's being reported, we're not dealing with Urban Meyer on an everyday basis. We're looking and we're going on these assumptions just on body language alone, just on how he performs in press conferences and such. What do you think his players are feeling right now? At 2-11, and 11, Meyer has the look, Meyer has the feel, Meyer is giving signals that he's ready to go, that he's ready to quit, that he's given up, that he's tired, that he wants to do something else. How do you think his players feel? His players who go out there and put their lives on the line, their bodies on the line every single week, every single Sunday, man. How do you think the players feel? If we have this, if we're taking a look at this and we're listening to this, and we're seeing this stuff from the outside looking in. What do you think its players are, are thinking and feeling? They have a better understanding than we do because they actually have to deal with the man. And and Khan is looking to bring him back? I think it's just a smokescreen, man. But then again, as I mentioned before, what when you're 187 and 32 in 17 years of coaching and you're not willing to change and you're not willing to adjust and you're not willing to learn shit like this is going to happen. I, I wouldn't care if he took the best team in the world, the best team in the league. I mean, Jacksonville has been floundering. Jacksonville has been a failure, has been a disappointment in terms of consistently winning games, consistently competing for championships, consistently being relevant in that department. So Meyer knew what he was getting into. He wasn't taking over the Kansas City football team. He wasn't going to coach Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He wasn't going to Green Bay so he could coach Aaron Rodgers. He wasn't doing any of those things. He was partaking in being a coach for one of the worst teams in the NFL by far for years consistently. What did you expect? What were you thinking? That because you went 187 and 32, people, the players and coaches were going to jump when you said jump? They were going to ask how high? As I mentioned before, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to be... Look, as I mentioned, 17 seasons, college coach, 12 of those seasons, the most games he ever lost was two. Two. So if you're not going to change, if you're not going to adjust, what the hell? What do you think is going to happen? So, Urban Meyer, man. One of the worst, if not the worst, hire... For my definition of what a coaching hire is all about, I mean, at least Morty Morningwig and Hugh Jackson and such, I mean, at least they had NFL experience. Hugh Jackson had NFL coaching experience when he was coaching the Raiders. Steve Spagnuolo, Spagnuolo had coaching experience. All of these coaches that we're speaking about who might have flamed out and have bad coaching records, man, at least they knew what the NFL was all about. At least they had a long history of working in the NFL, coordinator, whatever, man. This guy, Urban Meyer, had nothing. And I'd never seen a guy who came in with no knowledge whatsoever be so stringent, be so hard-headed, be so stubborn in what it seemed like trying to learn what it takes to be successful in the NFL. And the hubris and the arrogance and the privilege that he had to come in here and like, oh yeah, some of these guys I coached in college, so yeah, well, you know, I, I can control every move they make, every step they take. I'll be watching you. The sting of that is, sorry, man, 
Same thing with Rick Pitino learned when he was in the NBA and he got Antoine Walker and those guys when he became the coach of the Celtics and he tried to coach him like he was at Kentucky and Antoine Walker's like, coach, I'm not 19 or 20 anymore. I'm a grown man with a gambling problem. I'm still a grown man though. So, I mean, some of the bullshit and some of the nonsense that you tried on me when we were at Kentucky doesn't work anymore because I'm not a wet behind the ears 19-year-old kid from Nowheresville. Been around the world and nah, yeah, yeah. Not only have I been player-hating and losing a lot of money gambling, but I've also grown and learned and uh, become a man. So that bullshit and that nonsense isn't working. Same thing in Jacksonville with Urban Meyer, man. I mean, the nonsense you tried at Ohio State, fantastic. But guess what? We're in the pros now. Guess what? I'm married with a couple of kids. That shit don't work no more on me, man. I'm a grown man. I'm not a kid anymore. So... Urban Meyer, fail, fail, fail. After that, I need to listen to some soul. I need to get down a little bit. I need to listen to something funky and soulful. I need to listen to some Day Tripper, but I don't need to listen to the Beatles version of it. No, 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 no. Give me something soulful. Give me the king of soul. Give me the most soulfulest, soulful soul, soul you can ever imagine. December 10th, 1967. God bless you, my man. God bless my hero. God bless my musical idol. God bless the guy that when I go to heaven and I want to have dinner with somebody, I'm going to say, Otis, could you bring in your uh, recent material so I can jam a little bit when I get to the pearly gates and I reunite with my uh, family and I reunite with my grandparents or meet my grandparents for the first time. After I get through all of that, I'm going to go see this man's concert. I'm going to see him, Sam Cooke, James Brown. Woo, that concert up in heaven is going to be lit. And the headliner is going to be this man right here with his funky, soulful rendition. Funky, soulful rendition. A minute worth of the most purest soul that you've ever heard. My man, the legend, Otis Redding. The NBA game between the New York Knicks and the Golden State Warriors is going to be starting in about five minutes, and Stephen Curry is going to be breaking a record, so I want to go ahead and take a look at that. It's going to be a great night at the Garden. It's going to be an interesting night at the Garden. I want to see what exactly the New York Knicks are doing as they continue to slide. I want to see the Golden State Warriors continue what they're doing, which is be the best basketball team in the NBA. So I'm going to get out of here and talk about some things real quick, and you know after Saturday's game, I got to just be saying what's up. Special dedication to my boys from Georgetown. Their victory over Syracuse. Man, Maminu Muhammad coming through. Love the kid. In fact, you know what? The great thing about this is, is that he seemed to be like a heady kid in the tense, in the sense that he doesn't seem to be a guy who's like, look, man, I'm just trying to be here and trying to uh, do my six months so I can hurry up and get to the NBA. He seemed, Now, I'm not saying... That's just a guarantee that he's going to be coming back. It's not a guarantee. But what I'm saying is, is that he's got some room to grow. 
he's got some stuff to learn. He's got some things to get better at if he wants to go ahead and be that first-round pick in the NBA draft. He's got to improve his handle. He's got to improve his outside shot. He's got to improve his dribble drive. He has to get more under control. But just in terms of the way that he plays, just in terms of his motor, at the very least, just based on his athleticism, what's it going to be when you're speaking about four or five years down the road? This guy can easily be a defensive stalwart in the league just right now. But if he wants to be that guy that's going to be able to put some points on the board and make all-star teams and such, go for two years at Georgetown. Let Patrick Ewing, America's coach, teach you how to do some things. You know, shore up that dribble, shore up the offensive end in terms of decision-making, shore up the dribble drive, pull up Jay, shore up the consistency from the three-point line with you being 6'3", six, 6'4". You know, get a little bit more point guard ball handling instincts. But in that game against Syracuse with that zone, he was the uh, guy at the top of the key. He was the guy at the foul line. The decisions that he made once he got in there were absolutely fabulous, fantastic. Yes, I know Syracuse is a 5-14, and four team, but if you would have seen Georgetown play against the uh, South Carolina Gamecocks, you, you would not believe that they couldn't beat a peewee team. Uh, you, you would not believe that they would be competitive against anybody. That was one of the worst games that I've ever seen. Kate Rice coming through, uh, making a clutch three at the end of the game. So we got great performances from Colin Holloway. We got great performances from Tyler Beard, who came in when Dante Harris sprained his ankle and kept the ship afloat. So I am very happy, very proud of my Georgetown Hoyas. Now, tomorrow they play Howard. A Howard team that is better than the normal Howard team, but still a team that we should beat pretty well. And of the atmosphere at Syracuse for the Syracuse game was great. It's going to be the polar opposite tomorrow against Howard. So we still have to keep that intensity. We still have to keep that focus. We still have to keep that passion. And let's do what we need to do and start blowing people out when we should be blowing people out. With the team that we have, as young as we are, we're not going to be able to have the ability to be blowing people out, even though I was dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas and dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie. And during the Syracuse game, I was doing the funky chicken and the James Brown and the kid and play these past few games against UMBC and against Syracuse. So we have shown against UMBC that we have the ability to blow people out if the competition is inferior, but it's a situation where want to get better, want to get better, want to improve. Again, not thinking about the NCAA. I'm thinking about the NIT, baby. If we can get to the NIT with this squad that we have right now, that would could be considered a huge win in my opinion for my Georgetown Hoyas. Wendell's World in Sport. I'm Wendell's Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Sorry, I'm preoccupied by watching the television at the game. It's just getting ready to start between Golden State and the New York Knicks. Um one thing that I want to talk about next time when I talk about what's happening in the NBA is COVID is running absolutely rampant so far this season. Brooklyn Nets COVID nineteen protocol list it grows at five of the four, five gross, gross, I'm sorry, COVID-19 protocol, the Brooklyn Nets. Now they have five players on the protocol list. LaMarcus Aldridge, DeAndre Bembry, James Johnson, Javon Carter. They were added to the interim report on Tuesday and they joined uh, Paul Millsap, who was ruled out Monday because of the protocols. And shortly after that, the Nets added star forward Kevin Durant to the interview report as questionable to play against Toronto tonight because of right ankle soreness. If you remember 
coming off that game on Sunday where Durant scored 51 points against the Pistons. Before that, on the Friday night game, he was he was doing the thing with 31 points against Atlanta. So you're talking about Brooklyn now has 10 available players for the game against Toronto and could get hardship relief in the form of three additional players. That's from Bobby Marks. And Chicago had two games against Detroit and Toronto postponed because of COVID. Man, their whole damn team seems like it's on covid uh, Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, Troy Brown Jr., Colby White, Javante Green, Matt Thomas, Derrick Jones Jr., Stanley Johnson, Alizé Johnson. Guys, who I didn't even think were in the NBA anymore. They all entered the uh, protocol. So the NBA is being ravaged by the COVID. And this is going to be a situation where, hey, man, you know, it's just going to be like a common injury now. And I think the stigma of the fact that no one has died that we know of from COVID and now with the vaccines and such, I think it's a situation where, man, we're just going to, again, treat this like it's uh, a regular injury and it's not dire straits. I don't know exactly if that's going to be the right approach that we should take. But, of course, we should be you know, we should be safe. Of course, we should use common sense. Of course, we should be knowledgeable when it comes to how to contract COVID. But uh, I think now we've gotten over the stigma of, oh, my goodness, I got COVID. And Michael is slowly face a horrible, terrible death, especially if you've been vaccinated. So I'll talk about that. And of course, when is Zion going to return? This is an interesting thing with uh, Zion Williamson moving forward, man. Another situation where um, he was supposed to come back. He was working his way back to play in Babe with a burning love inside. But he um, got another injury. His foot didn't uh, respond well. So he's going to be out again. Now the question comes exactly when, if we're going to be able to have Zion back on the court for the Pelicans is it a good idea to have Zion back on the court for the Pelicans and even if Zion comes back is it going to be the same bullshit in terms of minute restrictions and that type of thing so later on my next podcast I will definitely get to that but the game has started I cannot wait thank you very much for listening to the podcast remember wherever you listen to your favorite podcast you just go ahead and you just Download, follow, subscribe, rate, review, all those great things. Give me five stars. Give me reviews. Give me anything that you want to give. Just give me your positivity. Give me your love. Give me your uh, thoughtfulness. Give me everything that you got. One day at a time, baby. Sweet Jesus. One day at a time. Make it the best day humanly possible. All right? All right. Peace. Music.